This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another instalment of your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. For new episodes released every Thursday, just tap or click subscribe. Now, today we travel back to World War II. Britain was at war with Nazi Germany, and part of the government's strategy lay in property. Country houses, once the homes, retreats and pleasure palaces of the well-heeled, were now being requisitioned for the war effort. I was sitting in the library and the butler came in, my parents were away, and said, there are two gentlemen who would like to see you. So I said, well, show them in, and in came these two frightfully high-hard soldiers. So I said, well, do sit down and have a drink, which they did. And they said, "Um, we would like to requisition your house. That's Pamela Williams, who lived at Brodsworth Hall in South Yorkshire at the time. The requisition register, started in 1937, was compiled in absolute secrecy and was enabled in late August 1939 by an Act of Parliament. Houses were shortlisted as barracks, strategic headquarters, training centres, hospitals, prisoner of war camps, schools and even places to store works of ours in case of war. With us now to discuss what happens to three estates between 1939 and 1945 and post-war are our three guests for this podcast. Hello, I'm Eleanor Matthews. I'm a curator of collections and interiors and I'm going to talk more about Brodsworth Hall and Gardens in South Yorkshire. Hello, I'm uh, Andrew Han. I'm a historian's team leader and I'm going to talk about Rest Park. And hello, my name is David Hanks. I'm the collections manager for the North and I'm going to be discussing Belsay Hall, Castle and Gardens in Northumberland. Let's begin then with Eleanor talking about Broadsworth Hall in South Yorkshire. This is near Doncaster, of course, or Doncaster, if you're from that area. We've already heard this clip from Pamela Williams, who was living at the property in the 1930s. Who was she? Well, Pamela was the daughter of Charles and Sylvia Grant Dalton, who owned Brodsworth and the Brodsworth estate at the time. And Pamela's father, Charles, had inherited the estate after the death of her great-uncle Augustus in 1931. And during the Second World War, Pamela joined the Air Transport Auxiliary and also volunteered with the Red Cross. We've said in our introduction that the requisition register was carried out in absolute secrecy. So presumably... It must have been quite a shock for estate owners and her to be told that they were moving in. Yes, I think it would have been quite a shock. Um, They wouldn't have known it was going to happen. Pamela goes on to say that when her parents heard that the house was going to be requisitioned, they had a dicky fit, although Pamela herself thought it would be quite fun. And she, I think, was quite looking forward to it. Yes, because how old was she at the time? Oh, she would have been in her late teens at the outbreak of the war. So just at kind of the cusp of being able to fully understand what was happening and being able to play her part as well. Did her parents then, the owners of Brodsworth, have to make any preparations to move furniture away from the property or store it away, store away valuables, that sort of thing? Yes, they had to share the hall with a number of officers and their men. So they did have to move their belongings around and make space in quite a few rooms inside the hall. 
for example, the army occupied the morning room, they were in the smoking room, the dining room, the old kitchen, the servants hall, the gun room, a great number of bedrooms, the cellar area, as well as sharing areas such as the scullery, the drawing room and various corridors. So you can see there was a lot of very quick preparation that probably needed to happen in time before the officers and the soldiers moved in. What was Broadsworth used for while the military were actually there then? Well, there were a series of different army units using Brodsworth and the Brodsworth estate throughout the war, as accommodation was needed across the whole estate, not just in the main hall, and for troops to regroup and retrain after Dunkirk. So it was on the 26th of June in 1940 that the hall first became the divisional headquarters for the 44th Home Counties Infantry Division, commanded by General Percival, who reported to General Alexander at nearby Hickleton Hall, not too far from us at Brodsworth. And then after the 44th left, they were replaced by the 45th Division and then the Royal Artillery One Corps and then the 4th Army Group Royal Artillery. So you can see there was quite a constant changing of divisions and army regiments at Brodsworth. Okay, so how many military personnel were based at Brodsworth in those different phases? Or would you prefer to give us an answer about a total number over the whole war? Well, it's it's quite difficult to estimate. Local people in some of the recordings that we have, the oral history, locals recall a, a real sudden influx of troops who kind of appeared on the estate quite suddenly. And one of the kitchen maids, Anne Wilson, she estimated there was about 700 soldiers who were camped in and around the park and were billeted in surrounding villages, in the stable block at Brodsworth and in the farm buildings. And then the hall itself was the preserve and was used exclusively for about six or seven of the most high-ranking officers of the divisional headquarters for their accommodation, along with the officers' own batmen, their soldiers that were assigned to them, and the kitchen staff. So I think it fluctuated depending on when troops and when different divisions came and went. I suppose the accommodation more or less staying the same, the number of rooms in the house, the number of other accommodation areas across the estates, uh, that was fixed. So I suppose the number of soldiers coming in would have been fairly fixed as well. Yeah, around, I think Around that so. 700 mark, I presume. Yeah, I think it was still around the 700. One of the different parlour maid estimated around 300 people. Another one of the estate workers estimated around 5,000. And I think 5,000 is a bit too many, but I think it would have seemed like 1,000 from a little village such as Brodsworth that suddenly had hundreds of soldiers in and about everywhere in the gardens and in the estate. So one of the key questions about all these people coming in, whether it is hundreds or more than a thousand, how do they all eat and how are they all catered for? Well, the officers and the soldiers had different arrangements. So the majority of soldiers based on the estate had their own mess hall and cookhouse, which was in the farm buildings at the home farm. And they had their NAFI there, which is the Navy, Army and Air Force Institute. And the officers who were based in the village and were also cooked for by their chefs in the houses they were in. In the actual main hall at Brodsworth, the army chefs used the old kitchen, which had been abandoned from the late 1920s, early 1930s. And the army chefs used some equipment that was already there, but they also brought their own. And we have some lovely recollections from the army chef, Ben Crooks, who remembers he bought vegetables from local suppliers meat from local suppliers. He bought vegetables from the kitchen garden here at Brodsworth and he was also taught to jug or prepare hares by the family cook Emily Chester and because they were working in very close proximity to each other. You mentioned where the soldiers were eating obviously but the officers would they have dined in the house itself? 
Yeah, the officers ate in the dining room, which was one of the rooms in the house they requisitioned. And the officers, they weren't always waited upon. Uh, The majority of the time they collected food on trays from the hatch and carried it through themselves to the dining hall. And the soldiers who were based in the hall, who were assigned to the officers, known as their batmen, they ate in the scullery. As we said, the nearby majority of the soldiers on the estate, they ate elsewhere in the home farm, where there was another cookroom for the soldiers. And the family who still lived at Brodsworth throughout the Second World War, they ate in the library. So there wasn't a lot of mixing going on, by the sounds of things, between the family and the army personnel, Um, certainly at mealtimes. Not at mealtimes. They didn't mix at mealtimes. They had their kind of zones. The family ate in the library. The officers ate in the dining room. But they did occasionally interact. Obviously, they were sharing the house, so they kept crossing paths. For example, at one time, the family, the Grant Daltons, were invited to an at-home sherry reception in the drawing room. They were invited by General Percival, and which must have been very strange, as it was their own home that they were being invited to. <laughs> right. That's on top of the fact that their house was requisitioned to start with. What were the grounds used for then by these various regiments of the military? Well, the grounds were used for training soldiers, practising exercises, preparing defences. There was some tank practice occasionally. In the actual formal gardens here, what we now call the target range, which was historically used for archery, that was used by the army for target practice and for rifle practice, and also for competitions between the soldiers and the local home guard who had a few matches down there as well. I can imagine there was a bit of a boredom creeping in at times amongst the soldiers. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, they were kept busy with their duties and their work, but they did have some time to relax as well. The troops were shown films and they had entertainments and their dances were held at the home farm to which local people were invited to, which we know were very fun. And various events were held to raise funds for the war effort, which brought the community and the armed forces together. However, some soldiers did find time to go where they weren't supposed to go to inside the hall. And there's a lovely story from Molly Nichols, who's a parlour maid at Brodsworth. And she remembered one young soldier getting caught out when he went to look at some of the marble statues. I'd seen him go past my pantry door. I was near the sink and I thought, he's not one that waits on the table. Being nosy, I put my head out of the door and he sort of looked round each way and then he, he shot up to the right. And I thought, he shouldn't be up there. What's he going after? And I crept up there ever so quietly and watched him round the corner because it was the officer's dining room there. Watched him go up there. He went past the billiard room and then he stopped and he went round and looked at the back. So. I quickly walked up there and I said, excuse me, I said, you shouldn't be up here. I said, it's private. Oh, he said, I'm sorry, I got lost. I said, no, you didn't. I said, you only went up for a look-see at the naked lady. And he went all red in the face. (laughs) I started laughing. I said, go on. I said, you mustn't come up here again. I said, it belongs to the people that live here. I'm ever so sorry, he said. I think one of the chaps had told him and had him on a bit of string. They must have done because they were like that. Did the family and staff associate much outside of mealtimes then? Well, they were sharing the house, so they did keep crossing paths and they did meet at kind of fundraisers and events and things like that. But I think there would have been more familiarity and association with the staff and the soldiers who were based in the servants' wing because they also shared a lot of working spaces throughout the whole time they were there. And in fact, quite a few female staff and members at Brodsworth met their future husbands who were part of the armed forces stationed at Brodsworth. 
And in fact, Molly Nichols, who was Molly Hindle at the time, who we've just heard, she met her husband, Walter Nichols, when he was billeted in the stable block where she lived. And her future husband, Walter, was a signaller with the Royal Corps of Signals based at Brodsworth. So that's really lovely. Did these husbands survive the war and come back to their wives then? Yes, yes. Walter Walter and Mo- Molly married during the wartime and they eventually moved away from the area, but then their descendants came back to Brodsworth and worked on the estate. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So it's all sort of coming full circle in a way, keeping the family close. We've already described the hijinks through Molly Nichols' audio just earlier, but there were also times that called for people to be on their guard. Now, can you tell us a bit more about what happened with the owner one time? Yes, there were always guards on duty. There was obviously guards stationed at the house and there was a guard um, area stationed down near the stable block. And there's a really good example we have uh, from Pamela Williams again, who definitely reminds us to take a lot of care if you happen to be walking your dog or other family pet when there's a war on, as we can hear in this next clip of an incident that happened to Pam's father, Charles. My father used to take the dogs for a walk at night and he'd gone out of the front door, I think, and the sentry there had said, yes, sir, you know. But he made the mistake of coming back to the back door where the fellow was all, who goes there, you see, and father was saying friend and he said, I don't know who you are. <laughs> dogs all barking round his heels. So uh, he had to be sort of checked in the guard room. He thought it was hilarious. Yes, I think that's uh, quite a good example of um, how not to walk your dog at night when your house is requisitioned by the army. (laughs) Did any high-ranking army officers above the officers who obviously lived in the house visit Brodsworth to carry out inspections, uh, that sort of thing? Yes, well, Major General Percival, who commanded the 44th Infantry Division, he was based at Brodsworth, so he was living at Brodsworth during the time. And he attended many different parades and events, including one event which was attended by about just over 9,000 members of the Home Guard in the Doncaster area. And that was in October 1940 when Major Percival congratulated them on their drill and their turnout, which was very pleasing. Charles Grant Dalton, who owned Brodsworth, also attended that parade. And then after General Percival and his division moved on, then he was succeeded by Major General Schreiber of the 45th Division, who was also here. Was anyone at Brodsworth involved in the Home Guard? You you talked about, obviously, various army regiments, but the Home Guard was an important part of the Second World War as well. Yes, it was. So Charles Grant Dalton, the owner of Brodsworth, he was the lieutenant colonel of the 44th Home Guard Battalion. Charles had been a captain in the Army Service Corps in the First World War, so we already had military experience. And Charles helped plan training, helped plan exercises. He allowed the Home Guard to use his land to have regular training camps for officers and men of the Home Guard in there. Although Charles did get in trouble with a local vicar for carrying out a very noisy Home Guard exercise during a church service one day. And there are other events and stories that we have, such as one member of the Home Guard in the Brodsworth area challenged what he thought was a German parachutist in a field, but actually turned out to be a cow. Right, Okay. (laughs) don't know quite how a cow can be confused with a parachutist, but there you go. Is there any evidence that visitors can see today at Brodsworth Hall of this 1939-45 period of requisition? Yes, there's quite a lot of evidence still here. We have things like an air raid notice, which has been pasted to the back of the old kitchen door. 
which gives instructions on what to do in case of air attack, which was issued in 1941. There's some blackout blinds in the ceiling lantern in the kitchen, which is still there, and various army labels inside cupboards and some wartime graffiti across the site. And then also, as well as the actual fabric of the building, we also have hundreds of objects in the collection, from gas masks to the actual requisitioning notice for Brodsworth Hall that was signed by the owners and the army. We've got home guard uniform, we've got letters. And so we've got a vast wealth of objects and stories that can be explored about this really important part of Brodsworth history. Well, thank you, Eleanor. That's really fascinating. We'll move on to our next country house and speak to Dr. Andrew Han, who's talking about Rest Park in Bedfordshire, which, uh, Andrew, we both actually met at for another episode. In fact, we've done, I think, two episodes previous to this on on Rest Park, one about the First World War country house. Now, when Rest Park was requisitioned for World War II, it wasn't actually being lived in, was it? Well, actually, Rest wasn't requisitioned as such. It was, uh, it, it had been purchased by a private company, the Sun Insurance Company, as their wartime headquarters in 1939, because it had been put up for sale in the early 1930s, earlier in the 1930s, by the then owner of the house, the industrialist John George Murray. He'd wanted to move out really from the sort of mid-1930s because he'd downsized to a smaller property called Coles Park in Hertfordshire. And it took him quite some time to sell. He put it up for auction, it didn't sell. So then he tried again and eventually managed to sell it in 1939 to the Sun Insurance Company. And they saw it as a really useful potential site for their London headquarters because they were a little worried, of, as you would be, about the proximity of their headquarters to central London, which might be a, a place that was likely to be bombed. But at the same time, it was close enough to London that their staff could come up by train on a daily basis. So it was uh, you know, safe from the bombing, but at the same time, fairly close at hand. What did uh, Sun Insurance do to the house to make it suitable as a workplace then? Well, they didn't have to do a huge amount to the house itself because the the layout of the house, which Earl de Grey had built in the 1830s, was actually quite conducive for being used as a, for office use. But what they did do was they converted the big U-shaped stable block into dormitories and they had staff in there from the summer of 1939 effecting that reuse and conversion of those parts of the building. And they also erected 12 large huts in the grounds along what's called Butcher's Row, which is one of the sort of avenues which is lined with trees. And amongst these trees, they positioned these 12 huts, six for men to accommodate men and six to accommodate women with ablution huts in between for use for showers and toilets and so forth. And they also, within the house, the only change they made really was to create a new sort of dining area within a sort of mezzanine floor, which was fitted into the parts of the service wing to create a sort of dining area for staff. But other than that, they didn't really make many changes within the house itself. Did staff live and work at the property then, given the fact that during the Blitz, bombs were raining down and uh, obviously some people who might have been travelling in from other areas, at-risk areas, uh, might have wanted to stay? They certainly did, yes. I mean, employees generally worked a five-day week at rest. So they would arrive on Monday and depart on Friday. They came up by bus or by train from St Pancras and then changed into a bus in Luton and travelling up on the Monday morning and they left on the same buses on, on Friday Friday evening and one of our oral history interviewees mentioned that they'd have to wait outside the front entrance with their suitcases for the transport to arrive and uh, everybody arrived on a Monday and left on a Friday but also a lot of staff came in on a daily basis from London so they didn't actually live at 
rest at all. They just came up for the day and they would arrive in Sharabank's sort of large sort of type of uh, coach at around 9.30 sharp. And then they left at 4.30. So they had reasonably short working hours. And of course, there were also some local boys and girls who just lived in the local area and just cycled to work on their bikes. Often, of course, in the pitch black, if it was after dark in the morning when they arrived. So yeah, there was a real mixture between day staff and those that stayed over. But the actual mansion itself was almost entirely turned over to office use. And we know from from speaking to various people who used to work there during the war that you had the first floor rooms, which were the rooms where the high status bedrooms, they were mainly taken over by the senior managers to have them as their offices with their secretaries. And then on the ground floor, you had rooms like the foreign department was in the library, the accident department in the drawing room, reinsurance department in the countess's sitting room. And then the city branch was on the ground floor in this what's now the exhibition spaces. So you got all the different branches of, of sun insurance spread across these different rooms. So it must have been quite a hive of activity with you know lines of people with typewriters and desks and so forth working there throughout the day. And we think there was around 150 staff were there during most of the wartime period. What about the typical day for when they were stationed at the property, Monday to Friday? What would have happened? As I was saying before, the working day doesn't seem to have started till 9.30, because this was when the buses arrived, bringing up the day staff from London. But for those that were living in, they would have their breakfast first in the dining room, which was on the mezzanine floor. And one of our correspondents, Eunice Meyer, she was recalls there being piles and piles of toast that had been produced with these large commercial toasters and some of the staff would have to come down early and and toast all this bread so there were these big piles of toast ready for them to eat and there were so many staff that they had to have two sittings for breakfast so one lot trooped in had their breakfast and they went out and another lot came in and after breakfast it was straight into the office because you're only a few yards away from there and one of the people that we spoke to Peter Hoare he was an office junior in the city branch and he recalls he spent a lot of his time trekking up and down the stairs to the basement where they stored all their files to retrieve documents which more senior colleagues wanted to consult and then he had to take them back and put them back in the right place when they finished with them. Eunice Meyer, she worked in the addressograph department in the basement. They worked with a a series of machines that were used for basically embossing labels, address labels onto envelopes. And so she'd have to be involved in like typing up these addresses and then they were embossed onto the labels so that the stamped and addressed letters could then be sent out to the people they're being sent to. And she was working with a group of around 20 other young women in this department. And they were, they were managed by one man called Mr. Clement Jones, who must have had quite a, a fun time working with such a big group of women. They had lunch again in the dining hall. And something that Peter and Eunice both recall was that the food was pretty terrible. I mean, I guess wartime conditions and such, but it was very repetitive. And then staff would tend to congregate in the staircase hall to listen to the one o'clock news on the wireless. And Peter said that the senior managers didn't come down to listen. They just sent one of their typists down to take notes of what the broadcast was to then take back up to them so they could carry on working in in their office. And they also mentioned that personal mail was laid out on a table in the entrance hall. And this was a favorite place for people to gather and have a chat and look at the daily papers and this sort of thing. Then after lunch, of course, it was back to work. And they all clocked off at 4.30, which is when the coaches arrived to take away the day staff. But those living on site then had time for recreation before dinner at 6 and then more recreation into the evening. So it doesn't sound too unpleasant a time, really, to be honest. It's really interesting because it sounds a bit like a boarding school, but for adults. <laughs> yes, a little bit like that, yes. Yeah, so for the staff who did live there, what did they get up to in the evenings? 
I mean, I've seen some photographs, and I've you know, having spoken to some of the former uh, former staff there, they they said they did all sorts of quite fun things during the summer months when it was light into the evening. They would do things like playing cricket matches. They played tennis. There was a tennis court in the grounds. Also, some of the senior managers set up a miniature golf course and played golf there, although it did lead to smashing a few windows in the orangery, which must have caused a bit of consternation. And some of them got up to some gardening They because the, the grounds had been very neglected in the late 1930s when there was no one really living there. And so they had to clear away lots of weeds and brambles from neglected parts of the gardens, but they quite prided themselves in, uh, in making the gardens look better. In the winter, of course, you had different sports. They played football. And there's also one reference to a game between the over-30s and the under-30s. And uh, Peter referenced, mentions that the, the older men actually won the game, which is <laughs> quite amusing. And also we've got some cine film which shows staff skating on the frozen waterways. Some of the waterways at Rest Park, they must have frozen over during some of the wartime years and they're able to skate on them. So there's quite a lot of different sort of outdoor activities going on during the evening. Sounds like it. Plenty of entertainment. But um, what about air raids and um, blackouts? You know, you had to keep the property dark, didn't you, after dark to stop enemy aircraft um, from seeing lights on the ground and therefore being able to navigate. So yeah, uh, what do you do in a blackout when you can't see anything? Well, they had very efficient blackout blinds, as, as Eleanor was mentioning earlier, all around the house because there's lots of windows in rest. So they must have had to blank all these out. But it did get up to lots of quite interesting things still in the evening within the house while the blinds were down. So that a lot of them did evening classes. A lot of people wanted to learn foreign languages. And they also did things like choral singing and learning even Esperanto, apparently, one person mentioned. And then they also put in a bar in one of the uh, servants' buildings within the servants' quarters, which had a wide selection of different drinks available, apparently, and two dartboards. So what else could you want? There was also things like dances in the anti were held in an anti library where they set up a gramophone in the corner and played some records on it and had a dance they also had a few concerts because there was a number of staff who played instruments or good singers and there was even amateur theatricals put on in the staircase hall or in the summer you could just sit out on the terrace and uh, read the newspaper or read a book so there's lots of things that could happen but of course because of the blackout if you had to get back to one of your huts, you had to do so in the dark, stumbling across the lawn in the dark because uh, you couldn't show any lights. Yes, of course. Is there a home guard history to Rest Park as well? There is indeed. The staff formed their own home guard platoon, which was part of B Company of the 3rd Bedfordshire Battalion. And this was actually led by Mr Miller, who was the assistant general manager at Sun Insurance. He had served during the First World War and was quite a sort of military uh, heir to him, and he was very keen on setting up this platoon. Peter Hoare, who's one of the people we've spoken to, he joined this platoon. He was only, I think, probably 16 or 17 at the time. He recalls them regularly parading up and down the terrace, and he says, like, smashing the terrace to pieces with their boots as they sort of bashed back and forth across it. There were quite a number of First World War people, and senior people too. Naturally, they took the best ranks. <laughs> <laughs> And we had First World War equipment too. I remember that uh, I trained on a Lewis gun, which came off a First World War aircraft. We did a lot of exercises in the grounds. We dug a couple of machine gun posts. And another thing he mentioned was the lookout on the roof. They had a, a sort of wooden shed on the roof, which they used as a lookout in the hours of darkness. And they had to check out and see if there were any incendiary bombs falling on the roof and also look out for enemy planes approaching. And they had a telephone to call down to personnel on the ground if there was a problem. So it must have been pretty boring because most of the time nothing happened. But there were fears, though, that the Germans would use 
the long water, which is the long waterway at rest, as a navigational aid to find their way towards Luton, which was just to the south. So the war office actually insisted that this was drained, so they had to drain the long long water during the war. And this is possibly as a result of the fact that was uh, the Vauxhall factory in Luton was bombed on the 30th of August 1940, and 39 people were killed. And so they were very keen that there wasn't any sort of help to the Germans to actually be able to find where those factories were during blackout. How long did Sun Insurance occupy Rest Park then? They bought the estate in April of 1939, and they, after they'd done all the sort of renovations, they'd moved in by the summer of 1939, and they stayed there pretty much until the end of the war in 1945, and then moved back to their London offices, which miraculously had primarily survived the war, hadn't been severely damaged. Then in 1946, the site was sold off to the Ministry of Works, so they only really owned it from 1939 through to 46. And Rust Park, did it have any other uses during the war apart from, you know, the London HQ of Sun Insurance and this home guard aspect? Yes, it did. There's a building that close to the front entrance of Rest, which is called Rest Park Lodge. And that was used to accommodate 32 land girls who uh, worked in the kitchen gardens and they also helped out on local farms. And we've interviewed one of them, Dora Davis, and she recalls doing a whole range of different things like weeding, threshing, setting of potatoes and harvesting of potatoes she talks a lot about potatoes planting onions sugar beet carrots lots of, and also scaring crows which involved sort of running around the field and scaring them when they came down to land and she, she recalls that she'd had no gardening or agricultural experience at all before coming to rest so she learned it all on the job and indeed some of the parkland was actually ploughed up for the war effort as well as this some of those 12 huts that i mentioned before which were in the ground some of those were used temporarily to house female staff from bletchley park the cipher uh, headquarters near milton keynes which was used for decoding of uh, german ciphers one of these people elsie rowe who's a morse code transcriber she told us a little bit about her life there for several months in these huts and she also mentioned there were also some women's Royal Air Force staff there from Chicksand Priory who were also stationed in the huts at the same time as well. And then in 1945, we know that after the Sun Insurance staff had moved out, the huts were used for a while to house German prisoners of war. And after the war, one of these Germans, Wilf Klein, actually stayed and worked for the Agricultural Institute, which actually took over the, the site after Sun Insurance left. By July of 1948, there were about 150 of their staff were based on site and they took over the huts as well as the main mansion and other buildings. And they used a lot of the grounds and the surrounding farmland for their agricultural experiments. They ploughed up parts of the uh, the lawns and so forth, or they continued ploughing up areas that had been ploughed up during the war to use them for their agricultural experiments. So that's a whole other story, of course. Do we see much evidence of those huts and that sort of agricultural impact at Rest Park today? Well, the huts continued to be used by the Research Institute for a number of years, but I think in the 19, early, late 1950s, early 1960s, they were all demolished when they built some more substantial buildings in the grounds that they used for their agricultural research work. The main evidence we've got of the Agriculture Institute now is all of their sort of buildings, which were over sort of beyond the service wing. They took over the sort of service areas and there's built lots of new sort of structures there from the 1940s, really right through till the the early 2000s when they uh, left the site in 2006. So um, they had an impact there. But in the grounds themselves, a lot of what they've done has now been uh, reverted back to how it was 
Interestingly, part of Rest Park, I believe, is still offices for various businesses, isn't it? It is indeed, yes. But the area sort of beyond the area that English Heritage looks after is, is still sort of offices for a number of businesses, yes. OK, well, thank you, Andrew, for talking us through Rest Park in Bedfordshire and its story during the requisition period of World War II. Uh, we move on finally to David Hanks, who's going to talk us through Belsay Hall Castle and Gardens in Northumberland, another property that we've been to in person on the podcast. So you can check out those episodes as well. David is collections manager for the North and we are talking about what happened in early September 1939. Now, what happened, David, to Stephen Middleton, who was the then owner? So, yeah, Stephen Middleton had become the owner of Belsay following the rather untimely, unfortunate death of his older brother, John, in May 1939. Stephen was the owner, had received his requisition letter on Monday the 4th of September. And sadly, this letter hasn't survived, but we know from examples that have survived, such as that one at Brodsworth, we know what it would have said because these were roughly standardised. Detailed in the letter were the spaces that were to be requisitioned and it gave Stephen Middleton and his estate staff just five days notice to ensure that the spaces were to be cleared, which was, I should point out, rather more than some unfortunate owners had been granted. So everything in the in the spaces were to be packed up and moved and they were actually moved to the library of all places which wasn't requisitioned until 1942. So the majority of material was packed up, family paintings were lent against the bookshelves and interleaved with Persian rugs. Some of the more robust items, marble busts and china, were sent down to the castle where environmental controls weren't really a concern. The letter that um, Stephen received, it was quite sort of brusque, militaristic and informative, quite forthright, wasn't it? That was a sort of style of delivery for these requisitions. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite bureaucratic and uh, it read something along the lines of to the owner and occupier of the land and buildings described in the schedule here too annexed, I, Colonel, such a body, being one of a class of persons to whom the Secretary of State as a competent authority for the purpose of part four of the Defence Regulations 1939 has in exercise of the powers contained in that part of said defence regulations delegated the necessary authority give notice that I, on behalf of the Secretary of State, take possession of the land and buildings described in the schedule hereby annexed. I mean, it's very difficult to unpick. They didn't necessarily make it very easy for owners to perhaps understand what was going on. Yes, um, almost sounds a bit like lawyer speak. <laughs> but um, yes, it's. I suppose it would have been a bit of a shock to get that. After the house was requisitioned by the War Office, though, how was Belsay initially used? Belsay was initially used for the training of soldiers from Territorial Army battalions. And it was quite common for requisitioned houses to find themselves being used in this way during the first couple of months of the war. The Military Training Act in April 1939 had bolstered the army's numbers, but it just wasn't enough. So when war broke out, it's estimated that Britain could only muster around 897,000 men. Conscription that was brought in on the same day that war was declared helped improve those numbers. So places like Belsay would have been used to help train those men. And that's an interesting part of the history there, that uh, we didn't necessarily have ordinary army regiments. It was the sort of reserves using the site. Absolutely. So one of the first groups of soldiers to arrive were men from the 4th Battalion of the East Lancashire Regiment, who actually arrived on the evening of Saturday the 9th of September. 
after a rather grueling walk of eight miles from the local train station at Scott's Gap, walking by in pitch black. And we know quite a lot about the early kind of military life of Belsay, thanks to some of the oral history accounts and also the sheer volume of graffiti left behind by members of the East Lancashire Regiment. Yes, now tell us where the soldiers, the trainees, were actually housed on the property. So much like Brodsworth, the soldiers and junior officers were billeted in the stable block. Jack Saunders, one of our most prolific oral history recordings, actually recalls the rather harsh conditions that they were forced to endure. There were no home comforts in the stables, no mattresses or bedding. In those first few months of the war, the soldiers slept directly on ground sheets with a couple of blankets and maybe their great coat rolled up for a pillow if they were lucky. Crikey. So if the troops were staying in the stable blocks, that's how they stayed warm. They just had to just grab whatever they had, really. I suppose huddled together, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the men of the East Lancashire Regiment endured a really harsh winter in 1939. In fact, it was actually one of the coldest winters Britain had endured since 1895. So the men were encouraged to sleep with their feet against the walls and heads facing inwards. And if you were lucky, you were in one of the larger rooms where it was hoped that the combined body heat offered some, if little, comfort, I guess. But reflecting on the harsh conditions, Jack Saunders actually recalls that on a number of occasions he was so cold he could cry. He puts it, it was a miserable sort of existence being broken into army life. It was quite a shock for him. I mean, we'd just come from Civil Street, from good homes and civilization, as we put it, we were plunked in the middle of nowhere with a rotten sergeant major. Anybody who thought they could get a good and easy dirt, put their hand up, I can cook, and they couldn't, you know. It was the same thing every day. You got the same meal every day because they couldn't do anything else. They hadn't got the facilities to, to make pastry and things like that. It was just stew every day. This Private Jack Saunders is obviously one of the key oral testimony people. Did the rest of the East Lancashire troops leave any other evidence of their time at Spelsay? Absolutely, yeah. The East Lancashire left quite a lot of graffiti. They seemed to quickly get to work, leaving their mark. They're only based in the hall for a few months, but they're quite prolific. In some of the places, it's been particularly useful in helping us understand how some of the rooms and spaces were being used from some of the principal bedrooms all the way through to the stables, we're finding evidence of them being there. And one of the most remarkable pieces for me is a poem that was written above the fireplace in one of the principal bedrooms on the first floor. And it's only partially legible, but it ends with the line, the last will be the best it will, three cheers for the East Lancs. And it records a list of all of the places that the East Lancashires have so far stayed in the war, but it gives a nice insight into the mentality of some of these soldiers who were based there, already thinking about the end of end of the war and hopefully that it'll be over quickly. Yes, there's a certain poignancy to that sort of line, isn't there? That the last will be the best. It's almost, you can imagine potentially soldiers training up at Belsade, staying there, surviving that experience and then going into battle and then potentially not surviving that. So that that's an extra poignancy in, in the way those words have been crafted. Regarding that poem then that was found, is there any sense of who wrote that? Would that have been someone who shouldn't have been in the house? Because if it was found in the house, then perhaps they shouldn't have been in the house at the time. We're not entirely sure who wrote that or who would have been allowed in those spaces. It's not very clear at the moment with the evidence that we've got exactly which spaces, particularly on the first floor, that were being used by the army. But it certainly indicates that somebody had been in that room. 
And we know that the officers were billeted in the hall and would have used some of the rooms on the ground floor for offices, officers' mess, conference rooms and offices. So they certainly were in the hall. So it's not unusual to find graffiti in these spaces. Apart from the East Lancashire troops, were there other regiments using the property and grounds during the Second World War period? Absolutely. So like many houses, requisitioned houses, Belsay was home to a number of units and kind of arrived and left in sometimes alarming rates. So far, we've got evidence of soldiers from the East Lancashires, the Royal Sussex regiments, soldiers from the Black Watch, men from the supply services, the Army Service Corps and the Army Catering Corps. And in 1942, the hall actually becomes a divisional headquarters and further land and space was requisitioned. And this saw the addition of Nissen huts being constructed in the surrounding fields. So it's quite common for houses like Belsay to see this turnover of soldiers. What about access to the main hall? We heard up at Brodsworth, for example, that um, the officers just had access to the main family house. Um, Was it a similar sort of situation at Belsay or was there a bit more flexibility? So in the initial few months of the war during the stay for the East Lancashires, ordinary soldiers had little reason to enter the hall itself, it seems. Jack Saunders was, however, lucky enough to be asked to deliver a message, which was one of the only times that soldiers would have been allowed into the hall. But he does recall in his testimony that he recalls the pillar hall and remembers seeing the walls filled with pictures, which is particularly interesting and suggests that Stephen hadn't quite managed to get everything packed away in time for their arrival. Later in the war, however, that does seem to have changed. Mess rooms were established in the hall and so too was the naffy, which allowed some of the soldiers to a space to buy some supplies. This increase in access, however, did catch the attention of Sir Stephen Middleton, who was keeping quite a close eye on the hall. And in a rather lengthy letter that he wrote in February 1941, Stephen is actually enraged by the amount of footfall He writes that men with food, rubbish and rifles are just pouring through doing irreparable wear and tear. In response to that, he actually builds, possibly not personally, a series of barriers which he strategically places between the columns in the pillar hall to encourage the men to take different paths and avoid repeated wear on the floor. And the pillar hall is obviously this quite ornate Greco-Roman classical looking forum, almost like a marketplace, isn't it? But it's actually a hall that you walk into from the front door. So it's it's almost like uh, entering a country house and then sort of going back in time to Greek or Roman times. And of course, this is what was getting a lot of footfall and potential damage from the troops at the time. Absolutely, yes. It's uh, very much the centre of the hall and all the rooms kind of flow off that, much in the style of a Uh, a Roman villa. Um, Yes. And above you, of course, is that skylight as well, which sort of helps light the area. So it's almost like being outside inside because, of course, everything in that space is also stone. It is, yes. However, we do know that there was a certain amount of lino put down by Stephen Middleton at his request in order just to try and protect some of the floors and particularly on the treads of the stairs, which was deemed rather dangerous in blackout conditions for some of the soldiers and officers who were stationed in the hall. What did the young men staying at Belsay do then on a daily basis as part of their basic training? They did a a wide range of things, really. Basic training kind of broke the men into army life. So the day started around half past seven and what followed was around eight lessons, various different military exercises, route marches, kit inspections. And military exercises would have included rifle training, Bren gun training, machine gun training, 
bayonet charges. In fact, the quarry gardens, which are magnificent, were excellent spaces for mock battles with groups of men tasked with rooting out the enemy. Soldiers were also taken on larger route marches and manoeuvres up onto the moorlands and other local military training sites such as the Otterburn Ranges, which are still there today. Was there much occasion to socialise and leave the property and go out to the nearest town? Yeah, there was quite a bit of socialising. So the day finished around 4.35 and after that, provided you weren't on sentry duty or fire watch, you had a bit of time to socialise. And Jack Saunders recalls that even though he was plonked in the middle of nowhere, he seems uh, he made the best of it. So every Saturday, there was the opportunity to travel into Morpeth or Newcastle on what they called the Liberty Bus, which I quite liked. So they could go into Newcastle, unwind, meet local people, even attend the Russian Ballet, which a number of soldiers from the Royal Sussex Regiment did do in, during their stay in 1942. Those not fortunate enough to be picked to go to Newcastle did have the option of a two-mile walk to the local pub on the road back towards Pontyland. But it was difficult. It certainly was difficult. The officers had a little bit more that they could do. They were given permission by Stephen Middleton to use the tennis courts, for example. And they were also given permission to access Stephen Middleton's boats and fish on the South Lakes and also access some of the books in the library. So it doesn't seem too bad for those. But what about Stephen Middleton himself, the owner of Belsay Hall? What was he doing while the young soldiers occupied his estate? Did he have regular contact with the estate workers? Yes. So Stephen has quite an interesting relationship with the army during the war. During the 1930s, he'd been working as a clerk in London. And as I say, it was only really the untimely death of his brother that had brought him back. But keen to do his part for the war, in November of 1939, he decided to take up a post with the Ministry of Food, working in the Cereal Products Division as an admin assistant. But despite this work, he does travel back to Belsay as often as his work allows. But in the interim, he's also kept very well informed of life at the hall, thanks to his estate manager, a man called Thomas Atkinson, who really acts as Stephen's eyes and ears while he's not there. And he writes a series of letters almost daily with Thomas Atkinson demanding and urging more and more information about what's going on. He's almost kind of keen to ensure that the military don't stray outside those contractual bounds that are detailed in the requisition notice. So, I see. So what was his general attitude to the army staying in the house? Was he quite happy to do his bit to start with? And then perhaps it sounds like he got a little, little bit, you know, irritated. <laughs> yes, as I say, it's a rather interesting relationship. On, on the surface, he plays the part of the perfect country gentleman. He welcomes the army into his home. And I think he quickly realises the futility of resisting the army presence at the hall and some homeowners did make attempts to overturn requisition noticing flexing their social position and pulling favors with their contacts but very few of those were successful so Stephen kind of welcomes them almost with open arms it seems and as I say he would often eat breakfast with the officers when he returned to the hall and he grants them permission to use his boats on the lake and exclusive use of tennis courts so he seems like the perfect host in November 1941, a Roy L. Phillips, a commanding officer with the Royal Army Service Corps, actually writes him a letter thanking him for the way that he's treated him and his officers whilst they were drafted in the hall. In reality, however, Stephen almost loathes their presence in his home, which is rather understandable. 
in some of his letters he's with Thomas Atkinson, he's rather candid in expressing these opinions and he'll refer to them in rather unfavourable terms, calling them unreliable and says that their shoddy workmanship of the electrical work that they'd initiated posed significant fire risks. So he wasn't necessarily a petty man, but he was very principled. On one occasion, after seeing a group of soldiers dragging a piano through the pillar hall and causing damage to the stone floors, he very quickly arranges that piano to be sold. So he has a rather kind of fractious relationship with the army. Were country house owners like Stephen Middleton well compensated by the state for the use of their homes by the military? I wouldn't say well compensated, but owners did receive compensation while their homes were requisitioned. And that was paid according to the Compensation Defence Act that was passed in September 1939. And that fixed payments at a sum equal to the rent, which might reasonably be expected to be paid by a private tenant in September 1939. Owners were often upset about the amounts that they'd received and as you might expect, many had self-inflated sense of worth of their homes. And, and that was a matter made worse by the fact that the army actually used their own land agents to determine the cost rather than rely on family lawyers who might have inflated these prices. So for Belsay, for example, we know, thanks to some of the letters and receipts that we have, that Belsay was valued at £200 per annum, which was slightly increased in the first year of the war to include the part-time wages of the head gardener, Mr. Thomas Bowman, the caretaker. It also allowed costs for protection work, such as hessian and felt for wall coverings, lino for the floors, but also assistance with the movement of some of the furnitures. So on the 4th of November 1940, Stephen Middleton receives a cheque for £383, 11 shillings and 10 pence, which to put into perspective, is roughly just shy of £23,000 by today's standards. What about the states then that these country houses were left in after they'd been used by the armed forces? What was the state of Belsay Hall after the war? So in the hierarchy of wartime tenants, the army was by far the most feared by homeowners and the damage they inflicted, intentionally or not, is probably considered legendary now. Such was the scale of damage, actually, and kind of the cultural loss that was endured by these houses that historian John Martin Robinson has compared them to that of the dissolution of the monasteries in the 16th century. And of those houses that survived the war, and many of them didn't, alarming number of didn't, if you imagine with a lot of smoke in, the fire risk was actually quite significant. But of those that did survive, many owners simply closed the door It's actually quite interesting. The Office of Works, one of English Heritage's predecessor, via a rather obscure route, was actually made responsible for undertaking protection works. But in reality, there was simply not enough resources and manpower to safely protect everything. But we know that Stephen Middleton did receive some money to assist with that protection works. But after the army had left, Belsay was in a pretty poor state. It was suffering from pretty much six years of neglect. So damp, dry rot had set in, particularly in the kind of service wing, so to speak, of the house. And visitors to the site today will see that this part of the hall, the interiors have been stripped back to the bare stone, which is a result of the kind of 1980s treatment of the hall in an attempt to stop the spread of that dry rot. And that's a fate that's shared by a number of requisitioned country houses. But it wasn't all doom and gloom you know not every house was treated in in that same way 
I see. Well, let's bring in Eleanor and Andrew then to talk again about some other examples of how the war didn't really help country houses in their collections. Eleanor first, could you think of any other examples where collections might have suffered deterioration in condition as a result of requisition? Yes, I mean, at Brodsworth, um, one big example is the glass roof lantern over the main staircase was substantially damaged by some anti-aircraft gun that was stationed on the roof of the hall. And the glass was replaced by the army with perspex, and which, as far as we can tell, is still the perspex which is up there today. Um, and apparently the soldier responsible for doing that had to peel potatoes for a week as punishment. Okay. But generally, although, as David says, the army was particularly feared in terms of how you could have your house requisitioned, it was much more preferable to have a school, for instance, in your home than the army. But at Brodsworth, the house was treated fairly well by the officers. It actually survived with limited damage. And that's probably because the family was still living there at the time and they did have interaction with the army officers. And Charles Grant Dalton had drinks with the officers on an evening, so they had a more slightly more familiar footing than if the owners were elsewhere in the country at the time. However, after the war at Brodsworth, there was an auction of some of the contents in 1946, which was possibly needed to raise money for repairs. And many objects were sold um, at that time, including the grand piano. And like David said, the same at Brodsworth, there were a number of compensation payments to the estate for war damage contributions in 1943, in 1944, and in 1945. And it's not clear exactly what they relate to, but they were certainly needed as a few, a few bombs did drop on a state farmland. But the only specific damage to the hall that we know of is, is, like I said, the damage to the glass roof lantern. So it fared fairly well, which is good for us and good for visitors now. Andrew, what about Rest Park? Obviously, Sun Insurance were the occupiers. It wasn't a family home at the time that it was brought into the sort of requisition. Yeah, era. no, I mean, it, it's actually because of the fact, I mean, actually, the, really the damage had been caused during the First World War when it had been a hospital, of course, when the house had caught fire and the uh, upper story had been burnt out. And then in the post-war period, the owner then at the time, uh, who bought it in 1917, John George Murray, when he sold up, he neglected the estate before he sold up and also sold off a lot of the statuary. So in a sense, a lot of the damage that could have been caused had already been caused. And in fact, you could actually say that Sun Insurance were pretty good custodians. They were very light touch in the way they uh, occupied the site. So they did some renovations. They put the huts in the grounds, but they didn't really cause much in the way of permanent damage. One good example of where they did something good was in terms of the portraits in the staircase hall. John George Murray had wanted to sell these off separately at auction, but Sun Insurance actually bought the portraits as, alongside the house and ensured that they remained in place rather than being prized off the walls to be sold off. And the only thing I can really think of is when we did the oral history of interview with Peter and Eunice Hoare, Peter mentioned that on one occasion when he and Eunice had been walking with some friends in the grounds, they'd stopped to take some photographs at the Chinese bridge and one of their party had leaned on the sort of stone globe, which is at the top of the parapet, and it had got knocked off and landed in the waterway. So uh, that's the only the only example I can think of of, of something that we know of, of, of damage being caused, but it's a pretty minor and now, and now the stone globe has been replaced. So whether it was fished out of the water and put back or whether a new one was made, I don't know. But that's the okay. only example I can think of. Despite these effects, though, that the war and the soldiers left on country homes and their owners, 
Was requisition a really necessary strategy in the war effort? I think yes, absolutely. You know, Britain had been bolstering its position throughout the 1930s, but it was still somewhat unprepared for war. And requisitioning of country houses particularly had offered up the perfect spaces in which to train men, but also for a number of other reasons. As you mentioned at the start of the podcast, you know, they were away from the public eye, so secret operations could be planned and works of art could be stored and evacuated from central London. Government ministries could be evacuated too and allowed them to keep working and school children could keep attending schools in various homes that had been converted for school use. So I think it was difficult for many homeowners to accept that their homes had been requisitioned and they certainly didn't get any public sympathy. But I think for their sacrifice, this period has been described as the finest hour for some of the country houses. But I wouldn't say that it would be an exaggeration to say that requisitioning did in part help win the war. These spaces were used for a tremendous amount of different reasons. A finest hour potentially for the country houses, but also the hour where the finest things potentially were put at risk as well, um, you could say. But what was the fate of country houses that had been requisitioned after the war? Because obviously some were affected, there was some damage. Were there any positives that came out of that? Ultimately, the war changed the way we look at country houses, I, I think. Many of them had come out damaged. Many of them were uninhabitable afterwards. But for those that did take on the challenge of renovating these damaged properties, they ultimately changed the way that they were run. And it it wasn't easy. It wasn't straightforward. But many were able to kind of navigate their way through and really open them up to new waves of visitors and income streams. Uh, It gave rise to the National Trust properties and English heritage sites really creating some of those visitor experiences that we all know and love today, which is quite remarkable, really. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be exploring the LGBTQ plus history that's hidden at Rangers House in South East London. Until then, thank you for listening and see you next time.